Welcome to Continuous Dream. Today, Part 3, Chapter 2 of Kells, The Gospel of Columba, a novel by Amy Kreider. Part 3, read by Baird Brucher. Chapter 2. Frisia. It took us some while to arrive at Frisia, having walked across Alba from west to east and north to south. We were detained for months in Kent during the civil war between Eerbert and Kenulf. It was a harrowing time of heads hanging from walls and burnt houses and fields. Once more I had a hope for the victor to be a godly man, in this case Eerbert. When Kenwulf arrived with his victorious army and called him out, I thought they would capture him and send him to a monastery. I was there, when Erdbert came out, and instead of tonsuring him, they cut off his hands and gouged his eyes, making sport of him until he died. So are the Saxons entertained. The next day the Bishop of Kent, with whom we had been staying, anointed Kenwulf king. I am disgusted. He received blessings from the church after his display of cruelty. Cruelty is too light a word. Why is the church a handmaiden to such evil? I don't understand. We finally arrived, seasick and exhausted from a choppy sail in the North Sea, at Frisia in the late summer. It is unpleasant to come to Frisia when sick, because the whole town stinks of drying fish which they live on. Our legs quaking, we stagger into an inn, which had a cheerful look, with two bright glass windows lit from within. Inside it was just as promising. Bundles of lavender and sage sweetened the air from the rafters, and there was a tidy fire. The place was cleaner than its occupants. Fishermen throwing dice red-faced and weathered in the firelight, their clothes exuding salt and the damp of the sea. But if there was hope of their getting warm and dry, it was here. They all cheered the alewife as she came to strain ale into their cups. Taking one look at us, she spoke in perfect Scots, her accent softening the roughness of our tongue. She had the brown eyes of a doe, and her uncovered hair was bound in a thick blonde braid round her head. What struck me most about her was her hand holding the strainer, large, strong-fingered, the hands of someone who could take care of herself. Good monks, we have bread and cheese, God bless you. The captain of our ship spoke to her in Saxon, and she replied likewise. I caught that her name was Lutgard. She left to fetch the dinner, returning with meat for the captain, and our bread and cheese and ale. The ale was thin but sweet, and I was thirsty. Gormgul led us in prayer over our dinner, and the gamblers and drinkers became much louder as if to drown us out. When she came by to refill our cups, the captain asked her about merchants for our quest. The negotiator of the great Carl Rex is the man you want. Seek him at the docks tomorrow. We have two empty beds upstairs if you would like to stay. Gormgul put his armor on Derek and helped him to his feet. I caught Reuben's hand. I'd like to sit up a while. Reuben shrugged and patted my shoulder. The three went upstairs to share the beds. I drank my ale and watched Lutgard serve the other traders and sailors, who were drowsing and growing quiet. She saw me watching her, and came to me. She brought me a bowl of stewed onions and turnips. You're as thin as a reed. Have it. 
The innkeeper is away, she sat across from me. The few patrons still up were drowsing by the fire, sometimes singing but trailing off at forgotten words. Sitting across from me, she looked younger than I thought at first. You aren't the innkeeper's wife? His daughter, then? She shook her head. I made my own way, and worked for a mattress by the kitchen fire, and sometimes a coin. Where are you from? I ran away from the gymnasium, outside of Mainz. I asked what a gymnasium was. It's a big hall, where girls and women weave all day for the benefit of the estate. The boredom is maddening. We weave the wool from the sheep, and we are like sheep ourselves, but I am no sheep. One day I realized, the door isn't locked. I could just leave. It's unheard of, but why not? I took the length of wool that I wore that day. It was my work, after all. And I left. I traded it for bread and a wheel of cheese. There were days I didn't eat. Once I met a priest on the road who guarded me a while. Other days I hid from the soldiers coming north from X. I made my way here and found this place, filthy and mouse-infested with bad food. I offered my services and proved myself. I scrubbed. I got him a better deal on salt and pepper. I strained the ale. Now the sailors and traders prefer here, and the word spread it is a good place. How old are you? I don't know. Seventeen or eighteen. What about you? Are you a full-fledged monk so young? I'm fifteen. An oblate. That means I haven't taken final vows, and this is a trial period. You probably can talk with me. I pointed to the other patrons. We aren't alone together, and my companions won't know. But you'll give up your independence. Every man must have a master. You have the innkeeper. I will have the abbot. She looked down thoughtfully. But still, no one is making you. It's your decision. I chose it. In a way to maintain my freedom. I told her the whole story of Ahid the Venomous and how I felt he wanted to buy my loyalty. She opened her mouth in a smile of delight as I concluded with my decision to join the monastery. That was clever. I'm glad you resisted him. But you have made a serious choice for the rest of your life. <sighs> it's an interesting world. Ogget thought he was all-powerful, but all power resides in the Lord and the Church. You're drawn to power. She said this with an approving nod. I blushed at her frankness, feeling exposed. I don't know... She looked at me with wide, earnest eyes. Will you go to X and visit Karl's court? He is truly the most powerful man in Franklin, and the whole world, maybe. I long to go there. Even then, Karl had been the most powerful man on the continent, aside from the Pope, since before I was born. But I knew little else about him. It's a grand place for someone like you, she continued, for Karl is a reverent and Christian king. Uh, his father was blessed by Pope Stephen, and Karl is great friends of Pope Hadrian. He's converting all the pagans between us and the Romans of Constantinople, like a tide of faith rolling over the hills. She tapped her fingers excitedly. He lives in the greatest palace in a city filled with all manner of people, noblemen and soldiers and merchants. Surely the lapis you seek would be for sale there. They have everything from all over the world. And Carl has a menagerie of animals from as far away as Africa. I would like to see a peacock. And his church is three stories high. With coloured glass 
and gold altarpieces. You must see it. Derek said it was a great centre of learning. Yes, of course. There's a school and hundreds of books. I would like to learn to read like a monk, and even write. Can you write? A little. We spent the winter in Kent, and I started to learn. She was caught up in enthusiasm. The whole family of the king is learned, both the girls and the boys. Learning is very important at the palace. That's another reason you should go. The more she spoke about it, the more I shared her longing to see such a place. Again, I wanted to be the devil on Derek's shoulder, whispering, Press on, press on further still. If he wanted to go, we would surely go, for it seemed nothing would stop him from dragging us on his journey. I asked Lutgert to tell me all she knew about Karl, king of the Franks. She told me of his hunchback son Pepin, sent to a monastery for trying to overthrow him, his string of wives and how his latest wife, Vastrana, was called the Iron Lady. She had clearly gathered all the information she could from her patrons, the sailors and traders. Her words lit the fire of my curiosity. We talked deep into the night. The men who were left slid to the floor and slept. The one candle burning between us went out. I'll have to pay the innkeeper for a candle, she said, but with a happy glowing face. Moonlight from the window outlined her pale hair. The tips of her eyelashes were blonde, little sparks round her dark brown eyes. I'll owe you for it, I said. She took my hand to lead me to the stairs and said good night. She did not squeeze my hand, but dropped it modestly. I felt my way up the stairs to the loft. A drop of moonlight in the one small window showed me Derek's sleeping white head. I crawled in beside him. Press on, I whispered in the dark. Press on. The next morning we returned to the docks, inquiring for Isaac. We found him directing the loading of a ship. A wiry man with long black curls and a black beard, dressed in fine clothes. Our common language was Latin, which I had spent the winter learning in Kent. Derek greeted him and asked about the lapis after the appropriate courtesies. I held my breath. He shook his head. I have no lapis now, as I have not been to Persia in some while. I'm on my way to Aix. There may be some there, but I won't be returning north again from here. We were all afraid to speak, staring at Derek, waiting for his reaction. At first his face blanched and he closed his eyes. When he opened them, he said, Then we must go to X. Reuben and Gormgal sputtered, saying we could not go further. Gormgal asked if there were any other traders. Isaac shrugged and said, There are the Easterlings, the Northmen. He pointed to another ship. Derek cried out and fell against me. The White Devils! I tried to stand him up, but he clutched me, almost pulling me over. He held my arms and shook them. The White Devils! The monsters! Here! He pointed to a long, narrow ship along the dock that was just casting off as we watched, being rowed by gigantic, white-haired men. It was a huge boat by our standards, with thirty rowers. The prow was shaped like a serpent and colourfully painted. Dried fish hung along the sides and the smell of death wafted over to us. Manacled slaves sat on deck. Scots. These were the race of men, if men they were, who burnt Lindisfarne and butchered his fellow monks. We all stared, speechless. The captain came to our rescue by putting his big burly arm around Derek and holding him upright while he flailed in terror. Isaac asked what Derek was about, and Reuben explained. 
They're ruthless men for sure, and pagan, Isaac said. But I didn't know this savagery. What the hell is this place? Where is your bishop? Gormgal asked. We have no bishop, but there is a missionary, Utger. I'll take you to his house, our captain said. Derek crouched against the captain, trembling like a puppy. He walked with an uncomprehending face. We turned down the winding alleys to a small wooden house with a cross nailed over the door. The captain knocked and called for Udgar. The door opened, and Udgar welcomed us in. A small man with red hair, blue veins running through the sheer white skin of his forearms and head and sandaled feet. His high voice in a sing-song, he took Derek's hand immediately and entreated him to sit. Without asking who we were, he carved a cheese and bread, and filled a cup of barley water, which he held to Derek's lips. Derek closed his eyes and drank, and then heaved a deep sigh and slumped forward, keeping his eyes closed, holding himself. Udgar put a blanket over his shoulders. Reuben explained who we were. Udgar gasped with pleasure to meet with, as he put it, such holy men. How often have I prayed for a good Christian company in my home among these poor derelict pagans? Gormgal asked if the Frisians had not become Christians since St. Boniface. Was a true heinous act when the Frisians slaughtered our dear Boniface for his treasure chest, thinking it contained gold and not the golden word, his precious books. And that only generation ago. Now we poor missionaries continue his work and have made inroads, but there is still ignorance and superstition and still many pagans, so that I can't say the Frisians are yet a Christian nation. Carl has sent me among the wolves, but Carl has many cares on all sides. And though he rules the Frisians in name, his hold over the land is light, tenuous, and his support of our humble work is... Udgar blushed, searching for the word. He is a great king and lord, and leading by example, we must all be soldiers of the lord. Udgar filled another cup, and we passed it between us. The captain, seeing we were settled, took his leave to return to the dock. Udgar said, You must stay for a catechism class this evening. I have a good company of humble men and women, thirsty for the good news, who take instruction from me. They, in turn, spread the word. This is our work. They will be overjoyed to meet you. Of course, we agreed to stay. We spent the day seeing the little church attached to his house with its simple altar and brass service pieces and candelabra. He showed us his few books, and most holy of all, the very book Boniface held up against the mortal blow that the pagan sword struck and cleaved. I stared at the book. The red leather over the wooden cover was split, exposing the deep scar from the sword, a palpable wound. I looked at Reuben, raising my eyebrows in question, and he nodded. I traced my finger down the scar. I imagined Boniface on that beach, raising the Bible over his head, the pagan sword coming down across it, down, through his skull, the gash across his face continuing the gash on this very book. Chills shook me between the shoulder blades. It was not St. Boniface's death I was thinking of but our mission. Our journey was to get materials to make a great new gospel as protection against the terrifying demons who sacked Lindisfarne. Yet this book did not protect Boniface at all. And the very demons were here, accepted as traitors. In this strange place, it stayed light well into the evening so that I could not tell what hour it was. Gradually, a small group of Udgar's pagan students assembled at his house. A few men, some children, mostly women. They were all very dirty and impoverished. But last to my surprise, 
Lutgert arrived, a fresh wrap around her hair and a new candle in her hand to donate to the church. She saw me and allowed a quick smile to me before lowering her eyes in reverence and taking a seat right beside Utger. While Utger spoke, Lutgert leaned forward and listened intently, nodding and sometimes offering her own explanation when someone had a question, as if she were Utger's assistant. She was his star pupil. The talk was about the Incarnation. A big hirsute man with a tangle of filthy hair spread his hands across his chest and asked, So our Lord and God had his way with the girl Mary and fathered our Saviour? Oh, no, 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 said Utger with a stammer. Lutgard broke in. God created our Saviour in her womb by his thoughts, not with carnal relations. Our Saviour was born of a virgin. He didn't disguise himself as Joseph and take his form. God has no form, said Lutgard. She turned to Utgard. That is right, God is formless. The folk looked puzzled. Utgard held up his hand parallel to the floor, his index finger extended. The nature of God is beyond definition. The big man addressed Lutgard. You have taught us an idol is only wood that can burn or iron that can melt. That is wise. But God must take forms, must enter into beings. For how does God see without eyes or hear without ears? Nutgard looked at Utgar, nodding again with encouragement, looking like she expected him to say something brilliant. Utgar's hand was still in the air, paused if it's holding on to a thought. He looked at her bright face with tired eyes, then jerked his head toward the others. Our eyes see because we have a sense of sight, our ears hear, because... We have the sense of hearing. God has the sense of sight and the sense of hearing without the physical accessories, in the same way that the tree has a sense of sunlight and grows toward it, though it cannot see sunlight. The Christians chopped down our great tree, said one of the children. His mother put her arms around him and shushed him. God is not a tree, Ugar said, a thin film of sweat covering his face. The big man continued. You taught us that casting spells with ashes and pebbles and herbs is false and superstitious because there is no magic in a stone or a twig. But to pray will bring a greater sort of magic. So it is the sense behind the prayer that is the magic of it and not the sounds of it, that God hears the sense of it. Udgar slowly nodded. Lutgard beamed. The children looked baffled and a little angry. You taught us the special prayer. I memorized it, said one. Lutgard scooted over and put her arm around the girl. It's a good prayer and powerful. The more you understand the words, the more power there is in the sense of it. The big man turned to us and I wondered if at that moment the others were as nervous as I was, wondering what he was going to ask. And all the monks chanting scripture together, there is much sense in your combined voices? Reuben rubbed his apple cheek and smiled. Much sense. They were clearly taken with this new concept of sense, though I'm not sure if anyone in the room truly understood it. Derek suddenly made a loud clap with his hands and bent forward. It would be a mistake to think there is more of God in a large congregation than in one word of prayer. For God is infinite. There is as much of God in a drop as in the mighty ocean. As much of God in an acorn seed as in a forest of oaks. For, being formless, 
God is without bonds, without beginning, without end. Nothing can limit his power. The group looked at Derek with thoughtful surprise expressions. He continued, If God entered the form of a feline to see in darkness, still his eyes would be limited. If he entered the form of an eagle to see from a great height, still he would be limited. Any form, wolf or bear, lion or ox, is still limited. But God's senses are without limit. The group nodded. The outspoken girl, who was squeezed beside Lucard, said, And if my brother is not saved, he will go to hell, won't he? Reuben said, Your brother will be saved. The girl screwed up her face. I want him to go to hell. He hits me. Her mother gave her a little shake and hushed her. A boy hopped down from his mother's lap. I want to be a soldier for Carl and kill the Saxon unbelievers. Ugder smoothed the boy's hair. Salvation is best spread through education and peace and love. The boy twisted back and forth where he stood. This is boring. Odin is a warrior. Is Christ a great warrior or not? Gormgal reached over and pulled the boy toward him. He is the greatest warrior. Even now, he is fighting for your soul. Even now, the saints are fighting against the devil. Does Odin fight for anyone but himself? Does he fight for you and your mother and father? To Christ, even a little boy is as important as a great king. The boy sighed and looked unhappy. I will fight, he murmured. Udgar spread his arms. Let us sing a song. As the group left, I wandered outside with Lutgard. You are a model student. She beamed. Karl has made Christendom all-powerful, and he expects his court to be one of reverence. Is that self-serving? She cocked her head. What about you? Last night you spoke with great heat about the power of the church, which you want to share in. I felt my face turn red. I didn't mean it that way. The church should be all-powerful. I didn't mean I wanted the power. I think there is something you do want. Do I? We gazed at each other in the twilight. Do you think you know me so well? I asked. But I knew I had been very forthcoming in our previous talk. The secret to knowing people is to listen well. Knowing what people want makes you strong. That's a secret I don't share with anybody. But you know what I want, too. Isaac the merchant is returning to Aix soon. I have some money, but no escort. If only some nice Christian pilgrims would accompany me. She tilted her head and batted her eyelashes in self-mockery. I laughed. It's not my decision. I'm the least of the group to have a say. But I think the old man would follow you. And the others follow him. You have a high opinion of my powers. The last secret is that anyone can have power if they only dare take it. In the setting sun, her eyes shone like bronze. Her hood slipped off her hair, braided in a crown around her head. It's up to God, I said. Of course, but I do believe God helps those who help themselves. And why should I want to go to X? You assume I want the same as you. I think so. I think you long to see the great Karl's court, because you're curious. And I think you've been planting the idea in my head from the start. She smiled, radiant in the rosy light. We shall always be open and honest with one another, for I think we are too alike to keep secrets from each other.
she held out her hand, thin and strong. And I took it, and she grasped my pinky in hers. As she tugged on my pinky, she tilted her head back and looked at me hard, with a gnawing look of approval. Trust, then, I said. Trust. With that, she turned and left. Though nothing was decided, and we knew I could promise nothing, I only knew that somewhere in the world I had a friend, a sister, who dispelled a loneliness heavier than I had realised before. The next morning after prayers, a visitor knocked loudly on Ulgar's door. A man stepped in, and I recognised one of the soldiers who had accompanied us from Kent to the sea. There you are. Messengers have been trying to catch up with you all the way from Iona, from monastery to monastery to Kent. It was a hard sail to get here, bless me, father, he said to Urga, and he flopped down on a bench. He set a rolled-up scroll from his belt and handed it to Derek, who read it and passed it with shaking hands to Reuben. Reuben said, Our abbot Bressel is dead. Brother Connachtuck is the new abbot. Work has commenced on the book. We have been gone too long, must return. Tears slipped from Gormgal's heavily wrinkled eyes. My dear friend Bressel, we missed his last days. We missed his funeral, God forgive us. This has been a foolish mission. Our abbot sends for us, so it's decided, Reuben said. He looked grim, as if expecting trouble, which he was right to expect. Derek smashed his fist against the table. Connachtuck is not my abbot. I am from Lindisfarne, not Iona. My abbot commands me to make the great book, and it will be perfect. We will have the lapis. Gormgal's grief flew into rage. Lapis is the devil's. The devil has driven us this way on a fool's quest. We've come far enough, too far. Uh, my dear father, my dear friend. He started to sob. Nithard put his arm around him. Reuben sighed and waited. Derek bit his lower lip, shaking. Quietly, he said to the heir, I will go. If I have to go alone, I shall go and serve my lord. Reuben narrowed his eyes, and I felt there was a gleam of malice in them. Then perhaps it is for the best. We will return at our abbot's pleasure, and you will go on to obtain the lapis. I stifled a gasp. It seemed cruel to abandon the old man far from home, and he so ill. It was impossible to say what could become of him. But Derek nodded his head triumphantly. Yes, I shall go. Go? Gormgal croaked through his tears. Yes, go. I looked around in a daze. Then I turned to Reuben, who had now become the leader because he was willing to lead. What about me? Reuben looked at me in surprise, having forgotten about me. He studied my face and seemed to divine my desire. Perhaps you should go too, with Brother Derek. Derek stood and took the pouch off his belt. Then we should divide the silver for both our journeys. The others busied themselves with that, and Reuben took me aside. I don't think I can dissuade you and Derek. You will go together. God keep you from harm. But remember, you're the old monk's responsibility and you must take care of him. 
I looked in his eyes, knowing I had a solemn responsibility. Yes, brother. Ruben gazed back. You weren't as tall as I at the beginning. I realized he was right. He was not a tall man, but I had grown much. He pointed at his cheek and felt my own. I had whiskers. I feel this is your journey and God's will. But you must take care of him, he said. Then he put his hands on my shoulders and embraced me. It was decided I would go with Isaac with some of the money and tell him of our decision. I found him at his warehouse. He was happy to hear the news. He took a silver coin from me and said that I would need the rest to buy our food, which I should do right away, bring back to him, and he would have it stowed for us. And also, I said, not sure of how to go on. Speak, don't waste my time. Lutgard, the alewife, she wants to go too. She has some money. His manner instantly changed. He smiled. Does she? Well, if you are her escort, I suppose it's not impossible. But I leave tomorrow, and I won't wait if she isn't ready. I left to buy our fish and cheese and ran into Lutgard at the fishmongers. I wondered if she would actually go, or be afraid to now that she had the opportunity. But she was resolved. Of course I can be ready. Nothing weighs me down. I gave her a copper. For the candle, I said, so that you leave nothing unfinished. She smiled and took the coin. You know how I think. Now I will own nothing. We will be leaving friends behind, I asked. I was already feeling some pangs to be parting from Reuben, Gormgal and Nittard. One doesn't have friends in Frisia. One has useful acquaintances. I looked at her, wondering if I was in that category. She must have seen it in my face. But there will be room for friends in my new life, she said. And she grasped my pinky in hers. To be continued. If you enjoy Continuous Stream, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. For other ways to support the show, please see the show notes or visit www.continuousstream.com. Thanks for listening.